Welcome to our latest edition of Building Voices, the CMS podcast series looking at issues impacting dispute resolution and management in the construction and infrastructure industries. I'm your host, Jane fender Allison. I'm of counsel in the Infrastructure, Construction and Energy Disputes team here at CMS. This episode is the first of a two-parter looking at equality, diversity and inclusion in the construction industry. This is a topic of great importance in any industry and particularly in construction, where the challenge of getting a sufficiently diverse workforce and one which is representative of its diverse customers and stakeholders can seem overwhelming. Statistics taken from the Chartered Institute of Building website indicate that the construction sector is still made up of only 15% women, 2% on site, 6% black, Asian and minority ethnic workers and 6% disabled workers plus figures on LGBTQ representation in the industry are too unreliable to share. Add to that the skills shortage, both short term caused by COVID-19 and Brexit, and longer term shortages likely to arise by the numbers of construction workers hitting retirement within the next 15 years, and it all puts this issue into sharp focus for the industry. Today, we're going to be taking a look at a key piece in equality, diversity and inclusion, which is the UK law around discrimination in the workplace. We'll be following that up in our podcast part two with a look at diversity in action with international engineering and construction company Lang O'Rourke. So I'm delighted to welcome today Katrina Aldrich, a partner in the CMS employment team. Katrina has a keen interest and regularly works on people issues relevant to the construction sector, including off payroll working, toupee and discrimination. She's a versatile employment tribunal litigator described as first class and she's defended clients against a range of discrimination claims, including disability discrimination, discrimination on the grounds of religion and belief and equal pay. She also works closely with clients in resolving disciplinary and grievance matters, which often involve allegations of discrimination. Katrina recognises one of the key ways of preventing discrimination in the workplace is to create the right culture. As a result, she's actively involved in working with clients on their ESG and diversity and inclusion agendas as they shape their workforces for the future world of work. So Katrina, welcome. Great to have you here today. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start with a, a bit of a challenge. I'm going to ask you if you can sum up in a nutshell what the UK discrimination laws seek to do. Okay, well, the law of discrimination is essentially concerned with protecting individuals against being treated less favourably or unfavourably as a result of a characteristic which they have or are associated with or are perceived to have. And today we're focusing on discrimination in the workplace. And it's a really important topic for employers as beyond wanting to eliminate discrimination to ensure they're creating a place where people want to work, um, employers will be vicariously liable for acts of discrimination which takes place in the course of employment. And the starting place for all of this is the Equality Act 2010. And I mentioned their characteristics. So under the Equality Act, protected characteristics which could give the basis for a discrimination claim are sex, race, disability, age, pregnancy and maternity, marriage and civil partnership, religion or belief, sexual orientation and gender reassignment. Okay and so how can discrimination manifest itself in the workplace? So there are various types of discrimination set out in the Equality Act that apply to most and in some cases all of those protected characteristics that I've just mentioned. 
So I'll run through the main types just now. Uh, there's direct discrimination. That's the most straightforward type of claim because it occurs when someone has suffered less favourable treatment because of their particular characteristic. You then have indirect discrimination. That's more subtle because it focuses not on the protected characteristic itself, but a policy or practice that appears neutral, but disadvantages a particular group. So an obvious example is an employer requiring all employees to work full time. So on the face of it, the policy applies to everyone, so it shouldn't be unfair. But women are less likely to be able to comply given childcare responsibilities. So the policy will be indirectly discriminatory against women unless the employer has a legitimate aim for the policy and can show that it's proportionate. And in a disability context, there is also a similar claim of discrimination arising from a disability, but I won't go into that in any detail at the moment. Other types of uh, discrimination, we have victimisation. So that's a word that you know is used on a day-to-day -day basis, but some, sometimes the legal sense of it is a bit less familiar. A victimisation claim arises where there is detrimental treatment of an individual after they've carried out a protected act as set out in the Equality Act. So an example to illustrate is if an employee is subjected to a detriment because they've raised an employment tribunal claim or a grievance, they might be the subject of victimisation. Harassment, another type of discrimination and another word that we use day to day, but has a particular legal definition. The legal definition is unwanted conduct, which is related to a relevant protected characteristic and has the purpose or effect of creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for the complainant. So you have to have the link to the protected characteristic. Couple of examples, shunning someone because they're gay or engaging in racist banter can also be a one-off incident or a sustained campaign and it includes a conduct of a sexual nature. And then finally, the last type of discrimination that I'm going to mention is failure to make reasonable adjustments. So that arises just in a disability context and where the duty arises, the employer must effectively treat the disabled person more favourably than others in an attempt to reduce or remove a disadvantage suffered by that individual, maybe because of a practice the employer has, maybe because of a physical feature on the premises. So that duty, Katrina, to make reasonable adjustments, mm. can you explain a bit more about that? I, I could see that it could be difficult for employers to know how far they'd have to go in that duty. Could you maybe give us a practical example? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I agree. It, it, it can be very difficult to know how far to go and there can be a wide range of adjustments that you might have to make, such as adjusting job duties, making changes to working hours, adjusting disciplinary and grievance procedures. Um, there's no one size fits all. A tribunal in deciding whether or not you've made reasonable adjustments would look at a range of factors. So it might be, would the adjustment have improved the situation? What's the cost? Is the adjustment practical? How disruptive is the adjustment going to be? What are the resources available? A bigger employer is going to be required to do more. Um, and then also look at external assistance. Is there a charity or support group that could actually provide some support free of charge? You mentioned an example, and I think the case of Ermston against Network Rail Infrastructure is helpful here. In that case, the claimant was employed as a workforce health, safety and environmental advisor, and he had bipolar disorder and depression. He had a period of absence 
and then he was expected to return to his previous role with no adjustment to his duties and no return to work meeting. And it was a safety critical role. And so the pressure built up and he went off again and raised a claim. And the tribunal held that expecting employees to return to work, particularly in a safety critical role after a period of absence, was a practice which substantially disadvantaged the claimant. And it would have been reasonable to conduct a return to work interview, uh, implement a phased return and provide him with additional supervision. And by failing to do so, there was a failure to make reasonable adjustments. That's helpful. Uh, a bit a bit of a gear change now, but it would also be useful to hear a bit more about the framework around sexual harassment in the workplace. Yeah, so since 2017, when the Me Too movement began, I think we've really begun to see a, a shift as employers are doing more to tackle harassment. So um, it's definitely an area of interest. And sexual harassment can be any unwanted verbal, nonverbal or physical conduct. It's a pretty wide definition uh, and it can include things like unwelcome sexual advances, touching, sexual assault, sexual jokes uh, or sending emails um, of material with, of a sexual nature. I think one of the issues that clients find really challenging is really knowing when the line has been crossed, particularly where employees participate or acquiesce in banter. Um, so again, a helpful example is the case of Campbell against Permatalisa and Veralini. And there the claimant and her line manager had a friendly relationship, but he then began certain conduct which made her uncomfortable. So he caressed her leg and he sent her WhatsApp messages commenting on her appearance. To start with, she didn't do anything, but she did eventually raise a grievance. And as a result of that, the line manager ignored her, made negative comments about her to colleagues and nitpicked about her work. And all of that was found to be sexual harassment. It was not relevant that she hadn't complained immediately. And it was particularly relevant that she was younger, she was more junior and she was an agency worker. So her pos employment position was quite precarious. That makes sense. Thank you. So, Katrina, we've been talking about discrimination in the workplace. Are there particular categories of people who have this protection? Does it depend on what stage of employment they are at or other factors? Yes, yeah, so it applies to a wide range of individuals, so certainly employees, but then the wider category um, of workers. And there are also specific provisions for contract workers and protection applies throughout the employment lifecycle. So that includes the application and interview stage. And I'd also mention that while discrimination normally relates to conduct in the workplace during working hours, it can also apply where work events are an extension of the workplace. OK, and if an employer is found to be liable for discrimination, what will they be on the hook for? So awards for discrimination include multiple elements, and that includes compensation for loss of earnings and an injury to feelings award, which would be based on the impact of the discriminatory behaviour. A tribunal can also make a recommendation that the employer takes steps to eliminate or reduce the adverse effect of the discrimination. And again, one extra thing to mention here, individuals who are responsible for discrimination or harassment against employees might also be found um, personally liable and claims can be brought against those individuals. So uh, one to watch out for. Mm. And, and what sort of practical steps could be taken to avoid these types of situations and, and claims arising in the first place? I think as a very basic starting point, organisations should make sure that they have the appropriate policies in place. So do they have an equality and diversity policy, bullying, harassment, disciplinary and grievance? 
And there was a recent case, LA UK Limited against Galen, which was a reminder to everyone that training on your policies and procedures should be up to date. If you have carried out training years ago and it's very stale, it can't be relied on by an employer to show that they're taking reasonable steps to educate their workforce and avoid discrimination. Prevention is certainly better than cure and beyond policies and procedures, having a diverse and inclusive culture is really a key way of preventing discriminatory behaviours arising in the first place. So that's why I'm really looking forward to the second part in this series where we're going to explore that in more depth with our guest from Lang O'Rourke. Yeah, we certainly will. Well, thanks again, Katrina. A lot of food for thought there. And yes, please do join us again in our podcast part two, where we will be looking at diversity in action with Lionel Rourke.